Listen for a word from God. Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. Now during those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to the prayer and to serving the word, the word of God. So this is a packed paragraph, and it's only three sentences. If we were enrolled in a course in college on sociology or anthropology or political sciences, world religions, gender studies, race relations, cultural literacy of any kind, if we were enrolled in one of those courses, this paragraph would be enough content for an entire quarter of study. Or maybe you don't need to be enrolled in anything, depending on your neighborhood and your zip code and your region of the world, just walk out the front door. The story is thick with diversity of all kinds. There's a group called the Disciples, another group the Hellenists, another the Hebrews. There's a group called the Widows, a group called the Twelve, another group called the Whole Community of Disciples. It's not the kind of diversity we can track in columns and tabulate on annual reports to demonstrate our our mission or our values. This is the messy kind of diversity lived out in our own skin, side by side. One group is not getting enough to eat. The entire group is called to a solution. And the crisis is over in a couple of hours. Or is it? I haven't studied the Book of Acts in depth for about 10 years, so this time around, the world has changed enough, and I have changed enough, and the experience of the church has changed enough that I I feel like I'm reading Acts of the Apostles for the first time. There are two big ideas circulating in my thinking the past few weeks. When people struggle in the book of Acts, it's because of one of two dynamics. Here's the first one. Next week, I'll give you the second one. When people struggle in the book of Acts, it's because Living peacefully as siblings is a crisis that never ends. Jesus, and now the storyteller in Acts, emphasize sameness, the ways in which the people are the same. We're all people of one Lord and one God and one spirit, and we belong to one body. We have one future and one hope. And then the people pick at their differences. Yes, but he and she said, and I'm not with them, and no... And then the Spirit will say again, you are one people of one Lord and one God. There's one Spirit and one body. You have one future and one hope up ahead. And the people will go back and pick at their differences like a scab longing to heal. This is resistance to the new family unit Jesus is arranging. We talked about it last week, so if we missed you, please go to the archives and listen. Ananias and Sapphira, they show us resistance last week. They're not entirely convinced about this new community who holds all things in common, belongings and properties and groceries, along with prayers and praise and worship. Ananias and Sapphira, they elevate their own priorities, their own home as the primary source of belonging and safety and security, as if the couple or the marriage or the family is the end goal of discipleship. And 
And discipleship is an added accessory, an extra the family could choose. Then Ananias and Sapphira lie about this instead of saying, we're not actually persuaded. They're not honest. Jesus puts us into a new family unit. It's called the ecclesia, the group, the people, the called out ones, the gathering. And it's the primary site of belonging and safety and security. The church, us, the primary place of belonging. Ananias and Sapphira, they resist this. And instead, they draw their circle smaller, and then they lie about it. Listen, last year, uh, last week, in real time, in church, something slipped out of my mouth. If you were watching from home, you didn't hear this, but we're talking about honesty and the ways pandemic might be making us a little more honest with each other. And I confessed in church last week that I've been actually wearing flip-flops for an entire year of church. So when I came last week to church and I dumped out my drawer and I decided what shoes I was going to wear, I looked at all of them and I said, no, no actually, what I want to wear is just my flip-flops. If I could be honest about what's going on inside, right? Could we have a little more honest community? Ananias and Sapphira, they resist this. And when they can't tell the truth, they draw the circle smaller. We don't know how many years pass before we see these first fractures in their new community. We do know that the apostles, those original 12 disciples of Jesus, they are continually teaching and preaching and attracting more people to the family. And the larger you grow, the, the more rice and beans need to go on the stove. So we read today, Acts 6, about a conflict. It's a brief report and a quick solution, and they move on. But just under the surface, friends, that's where the story stirs, just under the surface. Acts 2 said that there are 14 regions in, of, in the known world that have come to Jerusalem. Involved in this story now are ethnic groups and languages and backgrounds and cultures, and they've come to Jerusalem with their unique identities, a, a scattered population, Jews scattered. We call that diaspora. Diaspora, that's a word we're hearing much more frequently. It's a, it's a word our kids and teens are learning as we become more truthful about our history, specifically about the movement of Africans and blacks in our world and the prior generations, African and black diaspora. It's one of the legacies of transatlantic slave trade and of colonial rule in Africa and the Caribbean, the dispersion of millions of people all over the world. If you're doing any reading or listening as I am, if you're attempting to educate yourself these months as I am, you know millions of black indigenous people of color must teach their children in this generation about diaspora. From what land was our family taken or scattered? We might live in America. Where was home? Well, there are diaspora people throughout the Bible. In the book of Acts, this topic is alive. Diaspora, which literally means across scattered. The people, these diaspora people, they live life on the edge because nothing for them is guaranteed and their identity as a group is, is always under constant threat. Negotiations happen every day all over again. Not, not to mention they've come to Jerusalem, which is now occupied Roman territory. The, these are some being pulled into the Jesus movement. All of this is stirring in and around and behind the story that we're reading in Acts chapter 6, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. 
the Hellenists, mostly Greek-speaking, the Hebrews, mostly Aramaic-speaking, and then we have this group called the widows. There are entire volumes written on the widows of the Bible. The most important summary I can give us this morning is to check our assumptions. The widows in these stories, it's not your grandma or Gladys our old babysitter when I was a child, right? We knew after dinner, if we got Gladys in the comfy chair and we combed her hair and she relaxed just right, she'd fall sound asleep, begin to snore. She would snore the night away and we would watch TV till our parents got home. Yeah, the widows in the Bible are not Gladys or your grandma. All it takes to be a widow is to outlive your husband. Widows are not uniquely old. They're not uniquely poor because 80% of the population in Jesus' time, they're poor. And they're not incapable of contributing to the community. Take time this week to read Acts chapter 9, the story of Tabitha, also called Dorcas. There's evidence of a highly productive society of widows during this time. What we do know is there are a group of women who are being left out in Acts chapter 6, left out of the regular daily meals for whatever reason. Who will own this problem? Well, we know who won't. Those original 12 disciples, they're the ones who say, it is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. These disciples, frankly, need to go back to divinity school because if you can't move tables and chairs, the pastors around here say, you can't be a pastor. Never did we hear Jesus say, you heal the people today because I need to go prepare for a Bible study tomorrow, or you feed the people tonight because, you know, tomorrow is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' ministry was always holistic, preaching and teaching and feeding and healing seamlessly day by day by day. He served the final meal himself to the disciples before his death. And that's when he said to them, I am among you as one who serves So the work in the community is specific. There is preaching and teaching and healing and food and provisions and table service. It's all called by one word in the Bible, and it's where we get the word deacon. Um, This word simply means ministry or to serve. That's it. There are no distinctions. It's all the work of the church. It's all collegial, not hierarchical. And it simply needs to get done Here's how quickly they settle things. Friends, the storyteller says, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we may appoint to these tasks, while we, we for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. When they, when, what they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, together with Philip and Prochorius, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. The word of God continued to spread, and the number of disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests, they became obedient to the faith. The widows of the Greek-speaking part of the community are going hungry, and they elect seven Greek-speaking men to join the leadership. Now, much has been made about this point. Thick books exist in library shelves. It could, however, be as simple as, these guys are bilingual, and that's a bonus. It could be as radical as diverse shared governance and representation to increase the trust in the movement. 
nothing about us without us. It's a phrase I've learned from our Kinship Sabbath School leadership a few years ago. Yeah, don't sit in rooms and talk about us and write requirements and create policies. Nothing about us without us can we please be in the conversation. The body of Christ has no space for exclusive groups of leaders making decisions about marginalized groups of members. And we see this principle alive already. Acts chapter 6, Hellenist Jews become leaders of the movement. So we ought not pretend everything is apple pie from here on out because we'll actually see scene upon scene as we read to the end of the book of Acts where the disciples struggle to widen their family circle. Living peacefully as siblings is a crisis that never ends. Last week, I cautioned against propping up the family unit or the couple or as the primary space of belonging and honesty and safety and real joy and contentment. Yes, families and marriages, they're sacred and holy, and they're not the end goal of discipleship. Some of you talked to me this week. Where did we get this idea? Listen to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 8, Jesus says, Who are my mother and my brothers? My brother and my mother are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Or, Jesus said, from now on, there will, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law. In other words, everyone's divided. Luke 12. Or, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Or, Jesus says, Luke 18, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and the age to come eternal life. Luke 21, Jesus says, You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Or, as the last one here, they were walking along the road. Jesus said to another man, Follow me. The man replied, Lord, first let me go home and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And to another man, he said, Another man said, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. If you've never read these sayings in the Gospel of Luke, it can be a bit jarring. Who is this family-friendly Jesus? I wish I could tell you these ancient sayings could be explained by language translations or metaphors or some explanation. No, no. Just like when Jesus says, feed the hungry, he means the people who go to sleep with with hunger pains deep in their belly. When he says, you must leave your family, he means prepare for another level of connection in this life. Families were precious and vital, and they were already rupturing during Jesus' time. 90% of the population works the land, and King Herod took any portion of the land he wanted, and he taxed the rest. So the poor get poorer, and people go into debt. They lose their land. They lose their crops. There's not a way to provide for your family. If you're not a firstborn son, you might as well go into the city and see if you can find some work. If you're a daughter, 
you'll likely be sold into slavery or married off early. So families were already disintegrating and fragile and ruptured. Jesus isn't separating families with these instructions. They're already separated. The crisis is already happening. Fractured families were a casualty of Roman rule. So actually, when Jesus offered people to follow him, it was stabilizing good news for families. Jesus relocates the family and all that that means into this extended community of people, open to strangers and outcasts. It's a surrogate family, a new kind of friendship, new kind of kinship, broad, inclusive, expanding. And there is a cost to this new experience, this new family. You have to make a choice to follow Jesus. It's easier to be a believer than a disciple, truthfully. So our story with the widows in Acts chapter 6, it's the first time we hear the word disciples used for the community of new believers. A disciple, it means to become a student of a master over the long haul. It means I'll actually change my life to align with the master teacher. And it's reasonable to imagine some believers dropped off along the way because discipleship, it's a large claim on one's life. Here, church family, is where I find this 2,000-year-old story meets yours and mine. One does not simply slip quietly into discipleship following Jesus. Dallas Willard says it this way, No one goes sadly or reluctantly into discipleship. In the final analysis, we fail to be disciples only because we do not decide to be. It's universally conceded today that you can be a Christian without being a disciple. If you want to be a disciple, an apprentice, it requires more than stating an affiliation. A disciple is simply someone who's decided to be with and under another person's instruction, capable of doing what that person does or to become what that person is. No one goes reluctantly into discipleship with Jesus. Willard is correct. It's easy to be Christian. It's often Today, in our world, it's reduced to a list of morals someone else decided upon, or agreeing with a dominant Christian voice, or attending church occasionally. Claiming to be Christian, that's simple. Being a disciple, this is difficult. Now hear this in our post-pandemic life as we evaluate what belongs in our lives and what we can release as we stand in this intersection thoughtfully. I'm very aware we have just a few weeks until graduation on our two campuses, graduation scattered all throughout the community, and we're all kind of at the end of our personal and collective ropes. I'm very aware that the emotional long haul of pandemic, it's got us. Organizational psychologist Adam Grant in the last few weeks, he's named this languishing, languishing, that somewhere between depression and thriving is this middle ground of languishing. It's the residual of a long haul, emotional long haul of pandemic, languishing. It causes us to draw our circle smaller and retreat, and I'm very aware of this. I almost skipped Acts 6 this time around. You know, in the church, we can be a bit apologetic in church community. We, we don't want to ask too much of people. This is trending the last 10 years or so, right? We, we certainly don't want to guilt or shame people into anything. We don't want it to be a burden to be in the community. We want to make it easy. We want people to want to be here. We come and get the hot breakfast and the coffee. It's great music. And maybe, maybe there'll be an, 
inspirational speakers sometimes, and even better yet, sparkly, attractive friends and a crowd. Vibe attracts tribe. That's the mantra of contemporary church the past decade. Because if we actually use the words of Jesus to brand our community, who would turn up? Like, discipleship is difficult. Put that on a t-shirt. One of the things I'd like to lay down post-pandemic is this idea that the success of the local church can be measured by some metrics of vibe and tribe and sparkly community. The local church is about the vision of Jesus. If we have to glitz it up, there might be a problem. Discipleship is hard, and the demands are difficult, and priorities do have to shift, and it won't always be fun. And yes, we need more greeters and deacons and cafe food hosts around here. I don't think the people in the book of Acts are struggling with the what and how of food distribution. I think they're still struggling with the why, the radical claim that we live our lives every day with Jesus as Lord. And this claim makes demands on my priorities. Luke not only shows us the vulnerabilities, widows and orphans orphans who are hanging on by a thread in a patriarchal, poor farming culture, Luke shows us the connections, the possibilities, and the hopes. There is good news here in Acts chapter 6. There are widows with enough confidence their complaint will be heard. So they use their voices. And there are men listening, responding, and surrounding them. To serve the widows and the expanding groups, these men now will need to plant and plow and cultivate and harvest crops in the nearby fields. It could mean these men need to thresh barley and wheat and build fires, and maybe they need to bake the bread, all in addition to daily meals being prepared and served and the cleaning up after. When you and I are tempted to see the bad news in the Bible, the bad news in the world, I invite you to look a little bit deeper. There is a hopeful alternative happening in the Jesus movement. We acted out of our deepest conviction. Jesus is Lord. Many bodies are becoming one body. It's not easy. It's difficult. That's for sure. I read of a Seventh-day Adventist church in Illinois in the last few weeks that decided post-pandemic, they didn't want to waste this crisis. What what, what should we be doing? What should we be doing? You would think these would be long and massive hours of visioning and planning and strategy, but they decided to take a taco truck and park it in the neighborhood, and they walked to the streets of their neighborhood and invited people to dinner. The neighbors asked them, well, what's the catch? What, 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 What do we get if we, what are you after? What's the catch? There's no catch, the church told the neighbors. Pastor of the church, David Osagero, who used to pastor here in our conference, said, what we've learned is that God is not asking us to build a bigger church. God is asking us for better relationships. We don't want to waste that lesson post-pandemic. Living peacefully as siblings, this is a crisis that never ends. Thanks be to the God of us all. Through the power of the Spirit, this God graces us, you and I, for this task. Amen.